Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Robin Steiner. Today, we'll be talking with David Sussman, co-editor, along with Regina Lee Blazczyk of Capitalism and the Census, a fascinating new edited volume that explores the entanglement of the forces of capitalism and everyday sensory experience. David Sussman is an associate professor of history at the University of Delaware, where he specializes in cultural history, the history of music, sound studies, war and society, and the history of capitalism. His books include Selling Sounds, The Commercial Revolution in American Music, recipient of numerous awards and honors, and Sound in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, co-edited with Susan Strasser. His articles and reviews have appeared in the Journal of American History, Social Text, Radical History Review, The Believer, American Historical Review, Journal of Social History, and other publications. From 2010 to 2021, he was the associate editor and book review editor at the Journal of Popular Music Studies. David, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, So David, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Well, I'm a, as you say, I'm a historian with a whole bunch of different interests. And uh, the project that um, we're talking about today grew out of sort of a confluence of them, uh, thinking about um, capitalism and business, uh, which is my first book uh, about music, and thinking about uh, music and music as a, not just a cultural phenomenon, but also a sonic phenomenon. And the um, questions that came out of that project fueled a growing interest in capitalism in the senses. Um, So that's, uh, that's sort of where I'm coming from in this project. Could you tell us about how you and your co-editor, Regina Lee Blazczyk, came to put together Capitalism and the Senses? Yeah. So the book grows out of a conference uh, called Capitalism and the Senses that was held at the Hagley Library in Wilmington, Delaware in 2020. And that conference uh, was itself um, a follow-up to a workshop that was convened at the Harvard Business School in 2017 by a um, 
wonderful young scholar named Ahisano, who's one of the contributors to the book. Uh, and her, her, her conference, Capitalism and the Senses, um, to which Reggie and I were both invited, uh, really um, raised all these rich questions that, that we were left with and uh, developed further in the course of this uh, conference that we had at the Hagley Library in 2020. And so the, uh, the, edit, the essays in this collection uh, grew out of that uh, conference. In your introduction, you and Reggie Lee um, Blazczyk write that historicizing the census faces two great challenges. First, establishing that the census have a history, and second, um, clarifying what the census involve. So what are the census and how can we talk about the census as having history? Mm. Well, the, the senses are uh, the channels through which we sentient beings perceive the physical world around us. And that perception is both a physiological and cognitive phenomenon. And we in in the West, uh, since the age of Aristotle, usually think of uh, humans as having five senses, vision, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. Uh, but the, the notion of having five senses is itself not universally agreed upon or timeless. Um, Plato, for example, recognized four senses, and it was Aristotle who added a fifth, touch. Um, and many people believe that there are actually more than five senses. For example, the sense of proprioception, meaning um, the sense of one's body in space. And so th this is what we mean by, um, by the senses, this sense of uh, this, this way that we connect with the world uh, around us. Now, what does it mean to say that they have a history? Well, to a significant degree, uh, we argue, we, we think we show, uh, that sensory experience is culturally constructed and historically constructed. Um, how we make sense of what we smell, for example, is embedded in all kinds of social and cultural associations. Um, one of the first landmark books in the history of the senses uh, by the French historian Alain Corbin was called The, the Foul and the Fragrant. It was published in the 1980s. And it showed how bourgeois Parisians in the 19th century defined their class status in part by smell. That is, they associated the lower classes with noxious odors, and they perfumed themselves to signal their elevated station. So these are particular historical circumstances that informed how their identity as a class was formed and how their self-identity as a class was formed. Um, now, this uh, is the result of historical processes, this, um, this notion of the senses as historically constructed. Karl Marx said, the forming of the five senses is a labor of the entire history of the world down to the present. The, the German sociologist Georg Zimmel argued that sensory experience was a, a sensory overload, rather, was a, a signature experience of modernity. Um, Walter Benjamin, the, the philosopher and literary critic, he expanded on the relationship between the senses and technology in his famous essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Um, so some perception, the, 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 what what all of these uh, 
scholars and writers are driving at here is that sense perception isn't something something that's hardwired into us. It's also a product of time and place, of culture and of historical circumstances. So what we thought to, what we sought to do in this book was to historicize sensory experience as we know it today to show what many people think of as natural is also the result of these material historical processes. Wonderful. So um, in Marx's work, as you and um, Reggie Lee um, Blaschek point out, capitalist production has been framed as having a degrading and suppressing impact on the senses. Uh, many of the authors in, in uh, this volume challenge that presumption and demonstrate that capitalism has developed a distinct awareness of and attention to sensory experience, particularly in the realm of consumption. So what have you learned more broadly um, in putting together this volume about the relationship between capitalism and sensory experience? Mm. What have we learned? That's such a great question. Um, the big thing, I think, is that capitalism has done a lot to shape contemporary sensory experience. Um, in other words, the ways that we see, hear, smell, etc., ha, um, have been shaped in part by the capitalist forces in and amongst we live. Um, we, we, I think we learned that since the late 19th century, capitalism and capitalists have systematically sought to control and quantify the senses for profit. They are part of the process of capitalism. Um, I think the other thing, the complementary thing that we learned as well, was about the limits of those efforts to harness the senses for profit. Uh, we learned about ways that sensory experience has resisted rationalization, has resisted computation and quantification, um, ways that it has not quite fit into this capitalist logic or has resisted this capitalist logic. Wonderful. Um, so unfortunately, we don't have time to discuss all the wonderful pieces in this collection. So before we jump into discussing a few, could you walk us through the overall structure of the book and explain um, briefly the individual contributions? Yeah. So the, um, the book has four sections. The first is called uh, Framing Capitalism in the Senses, and it introduces several theoretical frameworks and questions that we believed were helpful for conceptualizing what capitalism and the senses encompassed. I, don't, I think we'll probably get to some of the contributors in the course of our discussion, but uh, there are three contributors to this section, uh, Ai Hasano, Ingmar Pedersen, and Sven Kube. And um, each of them speaks to uh, a different way of um, thinking of capitalism and the senses in very broad terms, um, raising generative questions about what and how we can approach this as a subject. Uh, the second section is called Resisting Rationalization, and it explores cases where attempts to quantify, control, or discipline the senses for profit have failed or have gone awry. Um, and this section includes uh, a contribution by uh, Lisa Jacobson about uh, the marketing of whiskey in the mid 20th century, uh, the psychophysics of taste and smell uh, by Anna Maria Ulloa um, about the attempts to quantify uh, smell in uh, scientific laboratories, 
based on an ethnography that she did, really interesting inter uh, ethnographic interviews uh, that contributed to her piece, uh, a piece by me about uh, supersonic transportation in the 1960s and 70s, and a piece by Nicholas Anderman, who's a, a geographer, uh, called Sounding Maritime Metal, about the sound of uh, large container ships and trying to read or interpret that sound as a way of thinking about uh, what capitalism and, uh, can and can't do. The third section is called Production, and uh, it features two pieces, one by Nicole Welk-Jorger uh, about uh, cattle feed, and another one by Grace Lees Maffei about uh, the design about a an industrial designer and the design of handles, the physical and the touch of, of handles. And finally, the fourth section is called Marketplace, and um, it focuses on sensorial efforts to produce consumers. That is to use senses to gin up new business, as it were. And it has uh, three sec three contributors. Um, one is Jessica Clark, uh, who writes about perfume and uh, perfume in retail environments in early 20th century London, specifically. A uh, piece by Reggie, uh, my co-editor, uh, about the, the, the touch of um, synthetic fabric. And uh, finally, a piece by Megan Elias about a campaign and a program by the Hilton Hotel chain to appeal to women in the mid-20th century. Wonderful. Thank you. So this volume begins with a really magnificent essay by Ai Hasano that introduces the notion of aesthetic capitalism and provides a kind of theoretical framework for thinking about the contributions that follow. So what is aesthetic capitalism and how did capitalism become interested in aesthetics and sensory experience? Uh, and what have been some of the social effects of that process? Uh, well, Robin, before beginning, I should say that I cannot do justice to the richness of the contributors' arguments, um, but I'm going to do my best to explain what I think their pieces argue and what their significance is. So apologies to all the contributors uh, whose works I um, uh, don't get in exactly the terms that they might put them. So I Hasano's piece articulates a proposition. Oh, let me give the title of that piece. I Hasano's piece called Use Not Perfumery to Flavor Soup, The Science of the Senses in Aesthetic Capitalism. That's the title. Um, it articulates a proposition that is implicit in the whole book, that a new mode of capitalism emerged in the late 19th and early 20th century. And this new mode of capitalism was an outgrowth of the surge in industrialization, mass production, and mass marketing. It rested on and fueled attempts to appeal to consumers' sensory and emotional experience. That's what distinguished it. And Hisano calls this phenomenon aesthetic capitalism, by which she means a capitalism appealing to and oriented to the senses. Um, her coinage doesn't in, uh, invoke aesthetic in the, as meaning the, um, the domain of art and beauty, as we normally think of the term uh, aesthetic. She is actually drawing on the ancient Greek etymological root 
esthesis, meaning to perceive or feel through the senses or through the body, um, feeling as it were. Um, so she's got this uh, more element, more more um, basic uh, approach to uh, thinking about what aesthetic encompasses, and in her. Uh, peace, the senses became a concern of capitalism, essentially in an effort to maximize profits. That's the, the, the short of it. Uh, it, was in a, it was the result of continual efforts to organize production and to design consumer goods for ever greater consumption, ever greater appeal. That was the, the engine. As the book shows, um, this occurred especially in the production and marketing of food, but in uh, uh, it also involved other goods as well, uh, ranging from airplane design to the shape of door handles to the smell of retail environments. And in Ai Hisano's piece, she argues that there were essentially two far-reaching effects of the emergence of aesthetic capitalism, standardization and depersonalization, or as she puts it, uh, uh, de-skilling. Manufacturers and product designers sought one-size-fits-all solutions for various problems, like how much salt do you put in a can of canned soup? And consumers, as a result, came to expect certain qualities in those products. That's the standardization. Meanwhile, mass production and mass marketing had the effect of democratizing access to low-cost goods. But at the same time, uh, this democratization also eliminated personal preferences or needs, I like a little more soup. Uh, I like a little more salt in my tomato soup than you. You like a little bit less. You know this. This, however, that is that gets uh, erased in the um, uh, standardization that is part of this. Uh, that is hand in hand with uh, that goes hand in hand with democratization. So that's the um, the the thrust of the piece. Uh, trying to show how democratization and depersonalization were intertwined in the era of mass consumption and um, situating that in a really an audacious way of positing a a new mode of capitalism, a new phase of capitalism. Thank you. That that was a wonderful, wonderful essay. Um, One of my favorite pieces or one of the most insightful pieces in this volume is Ingemar Peterson's contribution, Chasing Flavor, Sensory Science in the Economy, which explores the history of food sensory science through the lens of economization, a concept introduced by the French sociologist, um, Michel Calon. Uh, how has sensory science changed the way that we understand food? How has uh, sensory science worked to transform sensory, the sensory experience of food into an economic object, a market device? that constructs products, consumers, and markets? Well, I'll start by, I'll start to answer that by noting that food is perhaps the most fundamental thing that we consume because it's the source from which we get energy. And because of that, food looms large in this book. 
several contributors explore or comment on uh, the what the emergence of what's known as food science, uh, a kind of systematic effort to design and control how food tastes, looks, smells, and feels in the mouth. So this uh, idea of sensory science, um, central to, to Ingmar's piece, um, is also a theme of the book as a whole. Uh, and he, as he puts it, um, meals became industrial commodities. Tasting became an act of industrial science. And I, I love this. Tasting became an act of industrial science. His chapter, uh, his chapter goes on to detail how sensory scientists homed in on the complicated nature of flavor. Um, which they sought to harness and control flavor. And what they were, what they were contending with when they were homing in on, on flavor was something really complicated. It, it was on the one hand, something knowable. We, we, we have an idea what, that there is such a thing as flavor. We, we recognize it. On the other hand, flavor is very difficult to pin down or define. And that's the, um, the, the, uh, the challenge that these sensory scientists were trying to deal with, um, trying to figure out how do you um, build on what's knowable and pin down what is evasive. And what they found was that our perception of flavor is not just a product of the chemical compounds in food, but actually in, in, instead a, a complex of factors, including how it looks, how it feels, and how it smells. Um, and over the course of the 20th century, sensory scientists worked to break down all of these factors, how it looks, how it feels, how it smells, and to re render them measurable and quantifiable attributes. And once that was established, to, to standardize them. So um, maybe an example here might be helpful. Uh, in the 1950s, the Department of Food Technology at MIT sought to gain a better understanding of the texture of food. And there, there was a PhD candidate in food science named Aaron Brody, and he designed this machine to imitate how humans chew, um, the purpose of which was to measure and quantify how tender different foods were. Like the question is, how do you figure out how do you how do you standardize tender? Well, you figure out how to give it a number, and that involves uh, this sort of mechanized measurement. Um, and the result of this, uh, I, I find fascinating. It was it was this somewhat creepy looking machine that was a mechanical device with a set of pink gums and a grinning set of dentures uh, in the middle uh, that was called a denture tenderometer denture tenderometer. And there's a great picture of the uh, denture tenderometer with Brody cleaning the dentures uh, with a toothbrush after an experiment. So um, the result of all this sensory science, the result of the programs and projects like this one has been to create food as an economic object, as Peterson says. Um, and this has consequences that we encounter every time we go into a supermarket where we encounter all kinds of standardized uh, food products. Wonderful. Thank you. So I, in part two, resisting rationalization, 
your contributors explore how um, uh, examples of how the senses resist or refuse to conform to the logics of capital. One of my favorite contributions in the entire volume is um, uh, Lisa uh, Jacobson's Altered States and Gustatory Tastes, um, which explores um, the um, American whiskey marketing and uh, consumer preferences in the mid 20th century, a period before the invention of flavor wheels and a standardized vocabulary of flavor terms for alcoholic beverages. Could you tell us um, about the, the context and challenges of uh, mid-century whiskey marketing and why whiskey in this period is a site where consumers' sensory perceptions and tastes resisted, standardiza yeah, resisted standardization? Mm. Um, it's a fascinating chapter. It's really a rich, uh, evocative chapter. And uh, I can't really talk about it without first sort of grounding this in the source base that this chapter is based on, because it draws heavily on these marketing surveys done by Ernest Dichter. Um, Dichter is a, uh, was a, was a, uh, born in early 20th century Vienna, moves to the United States, uh, and becomes a pioneer, uh, of what's called motivational research. He is, he's sort of the, motivational research guy. And that was the name of his, his um, laboratory. It was called the Institute for Mo Motivational Research. And what he meant by that was uh, trying to figure out what is it that motivates people to buy and consume what they do. So he did all of these uh, focus groups and interviews and um, sort of uh, close readings, um, we, would, we might say, of how people consume different goods. Um, so he would have these um, he would he would film people as they were eating and drinking things or using household goods, uh, and he did these long, extensive, in-depth interviews with individuals and with focus groups that detailed um, the perceptions of and relationships with uh, different kinds of products. Um, there's a, a deep sort of interest in psychology. Uh, uh, there's a interest in advertising and the effects of advertising. Uh, it's a very um, rich corpus of material for doing research into consumer marketing, um, these studies. And so these studies uh, are today, they live in the archives of the Hagley Library in uh, Delaware. And they're great for sort of boring deep into how the marketing of different products uh, emerged over time. Um, and so in the case of whiskey, uh, whiskey is an especially tricky commodity to, uh, to study, um, and particularly in the 1950s, which is when this, uh, work by Dichter was done that, that um, uh, Lisa looks at, uh, because like other consumables, it was multi-sensory, um, it had taste, it had mouthfeel, it had color. And those affected how it functioned as a commodity. Um, but it was also more than those things. Uh, for one thing, it was an intoxicant. And so that is going to have an effect on its consumption, on the process and effects of consumption. Um, it was consumed under varying uh, social conditions. Um, people drink for various reasons in various different kinds of social situations. And 
Um, and those can sort of uh, shape and be shaped by advertising. Um, and people's reactions to whiskey were also based on their history before this period. Uh, marketing whiskey in the 1950s was done in relation to what people knew about and how people felt about whiskey from before the 1950s, associations that they might have had with it, um, the, the reputation of whiskey or, the, or whiskey drinkers, let's say. And so um, the thrust of this piece is that what uh, Dichter finds is that the primary consumers of whiskey were white professional men and that they fused their perception of the taste of the drink with their reaction to its effects. These, what Dichter found in these interviews was the people claimed um, to like a certain kind of whiskey and they liked it because of how, uh, because of its its uh, impact, not just because of the taste. So the the um, specifically, over and over again, he finds that what the the adjectives that they use, the language, the attributes that they like, light, mild, and smooth whiskeys. And when he digs deeper into this, what he gets is that they don't like light mild and smooth whiskey is just because of the light, mild and smooth taste, but also because the perception that the intoxication effect was also light, mild and smooth. Um, they, to, to be, to be uh, blunt about it, they could drink a lot and they could still function and not have too bad a hangover. So that was as important in shaping their consumption uh, patterns, their consumption habits uh, as any kind of perception of taste. And this occurred in a historical moment and in a social context, a historical context, in which whiskey consumption was a notable marker of class and gender. As I said, he finds that the uh, primary market for um, the whiskeys that the advertisers were looking to promote um, was white professional um, men. And within that group, there were different, um, uh, variations. There were consumers of bourbon and scotch men for the most part, as again, uh, who distinguished themselves from the drinkers of, let's say, blended whiskey. These were, there were identities that were associated with these, uh, different tastes. And many Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Many of the um, people that 
uh, Dichter interviewed prided themselves on saying that they that they drank for taste, not just to get drunk. That they sort of wanted to elevate themselves over those who uh, drank for cruder reasons. Um, and when they said this, um, what they sometimes said and sometimes didn't say was that drinking was also an important part of male sociality. And at times it was a proving ground for one's masculinity, that to be a certain kind of man in the 1950s in the United States uh, involved a certain amount of social drinking. And that drinking had certain kinds of um, uh, markers associated with it. Um, so, they were, there was this uh, motivation to drink. There was a context in which drinking was uh, incentivized. At the same time, as we talked about, whiskey, an intoxicant, um, loss of control could be a serious professional liability. I think we can all imagine what that looks like. Um, and so this sort of go, this is, this art of all sort of gets wrapped up in uh, what, kinds of whiskeys people favored and the different factors that came to bear on that. Um, as for the after effects, one of the respondents says to Dichter, a man in my position can't afford to have hangovers, sort of noting, sort of connecting the ways that his taste in alcohol uh, was connected to his social and professional identity. And ultimately, what Dichter's interviews found was that many factors, including advertising slogans, past associations with advertising, past associations with whiskey, the effects of intoxication, social and professional identities, all these had bearing on how whiskey was marketed, to whom, and to what effects. So that's, that's sort of... Uh, a sketch, I think, of of what um, that chapter encompasses. Wonderful, thank you. And I wanted to ask you about your wonderful piece, um, "The Sky's the Limit: uh, The Senses and the Failure of Supersonic Aviation in the United States." As you point out, creating um, a commercial supersonic passenger plane was a national objective in the United States in the 1960s. Why did it fail, and what does this tell us about capitalism and the senses? This is a chapter that um, pulled me in a, in a number of different directions in terms of what what mattered historically. Trying to to calibrate what mattered historically, um, and as as you said, in the nineteen sixties during the Cold War, um, it became a national objective to design and build supersonic airplanes, and this occurred in parallel with the efforts to um, land on the moon. This is, uh, it, it begins in the early 1960s, around the same time that John F. Kennedy commits the United States to landing on the moon. And these two grow in parallel over the course of that decade. Uh, one of course, one of these projects of course succeeds in 1969 and the other one, the supersonic aviation uh, ends up uh, failing, floundering. And the engines behind this goal, the reason why this was a national goal, uh, were both internal and external. They were economic and they were political. So for one thing, American officials believed that there was 
a lot at stake financially for the United States aerospace industry to produce and sell this new kind of airplane that flew faster than the speed of sound um, and uh, to sell them to all of the world's airlines, basically, domestic and foreign. There's a lot at stake financially in developing this new commodity, as it were. Uh, but the other engine that was driving this national objective was uh, political. In the early 1960s, the U.S. became, American officials became aware that the Soviet Union and a collaboration between France and the U.K. were both developing supersonic aircraft themselves. And it was believed in the early 1960s that if the Soviet Union developed such an aircraft first, that the result would be like the launch of Sputnik, the Sputnik satellite in 1957, which is to say a spectacular international embarrassment for the United States. So these are the, uh, the economic and political pressures that were driving this national objective to design and build um, and sell uh, commercial supersonic airplanes. And as a result, under these circumstances, the U.S. government pours millions and millions of dollars into the private aerospace industries um, to develop such a commercial supersonic jet. Um, and in the course of this development, though, the designers of these planes encounter a big problem, a problem that involved not politics or economics, but physics. And the physics problem was that when an airplane flies faster than the speed of sound, faster than the speed of the sound waves that the plane itself is creating, the compressed energy in those waves gets released in the plane's wake as a shock wave that's known as a sonic boom. So there's a plane, it goes faster than the speed of sound, and you're on the ground and what and you like hear this enormous thunderous boom that uh, is is really really arresting. Um, some listeners have probably heard sonic booms. Most, I'm guessing, probably haven't. They're less common than they used to be, um, but they're they're a big deal. And and um, to understand why and how they were a big deal, there's sort of two two facets of them that I would stress. One is sonic booms weren't just loud. They were really loud. They were terrifying and they were physically jarring. Um, they could shatter windows. They could cause cracks in the plaster in walls. They could send objects on shelves falling to the floor. Um, there's a doctor in, in New York uh, who writes to the New York Times and he says, who wants to be under the surgeon's knife when a sonic boom jars his hand? I, I read that and I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, an, a, an affecting way to, to put this problem. Um, so they're, they're really, the, the, the impact is, is substantial. The other thing about sonic booms is that they're not, and this is what most people, even those who do know about sonic booms, uh, seldom realize, they're not just a momentary pop when the plane breaks the sound barrier. Um, what a sonic boom is, is this ongoing release of this compressed energy. Um, and, it's and therefore, it's perceived on the ground underneath the entire flight path 
of a plane moving at supersonic speed. And this um, means that like an airplane flying from New York to Los Angeles would cause a sonic boom heard and felt by millions and millions of people as the plane traveled from east to west. So this is um, a problem because it belongs to this capitalistic development of this new product in competition with the Soviet Union. And it runs up against um, this uh, sensory challenge uh, that it's very, very disruptive and invasive. And as a result, it causes some pushback against the program uh, to develop such planes, uh, starting really uh, in the mid-60s. There are seeds of it in the early 60s, but it grows over the course of the 1960s, this resistance to uh, the supersonic planes because of the sonic boom. And uh, by the late 60s and early 70s, it galvanizes a whole movement against supersonic uh, aircraft against the whole program. So, for example, there's a group called the Citizens League Against the Sonic Boom, um, which called attention to the vast potential consequences if these aircraft went into common use by the airlines, which was the goal, of course. Um, and they was they published all kinds of position papers, editorials. Uh, the guy who ran it was in the news all the time. Um, he was a, a real gadfly, and he really tried to say, if we look at this from the sensory point of view, uh, developing these kinds of planes would have serious, I don't want to say catastrophic, but very serious uh, implications. And if, and then... Um, Building on this, by the early 1970s, there's a coalition of environmentalists that waged what was, in effect, a, a David and Goliath campaign to bring this program to a halt. Um, just to you know, reiterate the, the scale of these right here, you've got this, the David is the um, this tiny little environmental group that's got you know a hand, half a dozen people who work for it, basically, or fewer, really. Um, against one of this major national objective. Um, and they managed to bring the program to a halt in 1970 and 71. And if they hadn't, um, there are a lot of ways of thinking about this, but one is just that the world would have very likely become a much noisier, uh, I would say less pleasant place. Um, now, getting back to the, what, what actually brings this to an end. Um, the bigger picture here is that the audible impact of supersonic planes was not the only factor in 1970-71 that leads Congress, Congress to, to halt funding for the program. Um, it's, it, there's a, it's complicated and there's a lot going on. Many, For example, many economists uh, argued that Congress should end the program because um, supersonic aviation, as they saw it, simply wasn't economical. Um, and so there is another argument against supersonic aviation that has nothing to do with the census. Um, but the sensory impact of sonic booms was essential to galvanizing popular support. Um, and it probably really gets the greatest number of people uh, 
exercised about sonic booms and the supersonic aviation as a problem. So if the clash between capitalism and communism was at the center of the Cold War, the history of sonic booms, I contend, shows that no matter what capitalism's priorities were, no matter how strong the state was in promoting those priorities, there were sensory issues, issues of sensory pre- uh, perception that proved um, uh, impossible to to reconcile. That this is a, this is a wrench in the works that can't be uh, extracted. Wonderful. So when we talk about um, the senses, we're usually talking about human beings. But in uh, one of the most insightful contributions to this volume, Making Human Trash Tasty, A History of Sweet Cattle Feed in the Progressive Era, Nicole Wilk Yorger uh, is interested in how capitalism interprets and manipulates the sensory perception of cattle. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the history of sweet cattle feed? What does the spread of sweet feed demonstrate about capitalism more broadly? Well, to, to answer that question, I'd start by by quoting one of the uh, the outside reviewers who read the manuscript for the press. Um, this person said this piece, this chapter was disgusting, and indeed it is. It's really disgusting to read about the uh, messy history of what went into the um, practices of feeding cattle in the progressive era, in the early 20th century. Um, This was, it was news to me. I wasn't familiar with this history, but not only was there a whole cattle industry, there is a a corollary industry, which was the cattle feed industry, whole industry that was dedicated to figuring out what to feed these cattle to um, make them as as, uh, productive instruments for capitalism as possible. And so her chapter details these efforts by the cattle feed industry to come up with the most productive, literally productive animal feed possible, feed that would um, the, the cattle would eat and eat and eat to maximize, these were mostly dairy cattle, uh, to maximize the amount of milk that they produced. And uh, the solution that the cattle feed industry finds um, is in sweetness. And they put in all kinds of disgusting ingredients to uh, get cattle to, to consume more and more. Um, I, I, basically, what they were doing was design, uh, designing and marketing a kind of animal junk food for cattle. Um, finding, and th- this involved this kind of trial and error, fine-tuning the fine level of sweetness that um, uh, would lead to the greatest consumption by the, by the cattle. And in that sense, um, lo- locating sweetness as a variable that they could control for economic benefit. Um, so this is not only interest of interest to say agricultural historians uh, or historians of animal studies, let's say, or scholars of animal studies, um, but also specifically for thinking about capitalism in this book, in the sense that it shows how capitalism's drive to control the senses extended beyond the limits of the human world. Um, 
saying that we're talking about capitalism in the senses, the implication, the assumption, I guess, is that we're talking about the human senses. Uh, but this is a way of showing uh, that that is a kind of false assumption that the that the senses of um, uh, non-human animals matter too. Um, you know, often humans don't like to admit this, but often non-human animals have a certain kinds of agency uh, as well. Uh, over, for example, over how much they eat, that is a kind of uh, agency that non-human animals have, uh, and it is consequential for their. Uh, productivity um, for their value in a capitalistic sense. And attending to the sensory experience of non-human animals like cattle here um, shows how, how, how complicated and how capacious the subject of capitalism in the senses truly is. Um, it gets us thinking about food, the food supply, how it involves uh, sensory experience as well, the production of the, the foods that get standardized. Um, but it, so in that sense, it sort of uh, pries open the, the subject, um, shows a whole other room in this, uh, uh, in this architecture. Wonderful. Thank you. So in her uh, contribution, Megan Elias uh, tells the story of Lady Hilton, a program started by Hilton Hotels in 1965 to provide a hotel experience customized for female travelers, including rooms with specific decors thought to appeal to women, gender-based amenities such as sewing kits, bathroom scales, women's magazines, and fresh flowers, and gifts like self-care products and perfumes. As Elias points out, Lady Hilton is an example of how uh, consumer personas, an imagined customer um, that's a product or experience that a product or experience is designed around produces not just a product experience, but also uh, consumers themselves. So could you tell us more about um, how that worked at Lady Hilton? Uh, what can an example like this tell us more broadly about the socializing effects of capitalism? Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, well, this chapter is helpful for the volume in the sense that it. Um, introduces another kind of commodity that is involved in this uh, whole uh, entangled world of capitalism in the senses. Uh, unlike, say, food products, which are consumables, um, hotels are experiential. They're spaces that are consumed. And the, or, or the, the, the stay at a hotel is the, is the commodity. Um, and this is also... Uh, a, a sensory, a spatial experience um, that is uh, capable of being manipulated, capable of being fine-tuned uh, through careful attention to the senses, um, thinking about the ways that uh, hotels can be more appealing based on the degree to which they think about and attend to people's sensory preferences. That's sort of the background here. And the, the Lady Hilton program uh, that Megan uh, analyzes in this chapter uh, existed for about a dozen years, and it was an attempt to create um, safe and inviting hotel spaces for female travelers in the 1960s, specifically, obviously, for Hilton hotels. Uh, but trying to create safe and inviting spaces 
for late for for female travelers in the 1960s, which was a time when a greater number of women were traveling unaccompanied than ever before. So Hilton Hotels recognizes that there's a uh, a potential market that they can uh, try to maximize, and the program involves all these different things uh, that are intended to appeal specifically to these kinds of consumers. Um, they are they're sometimes they're separate floors for women. Uh, the rooms have all kinds of amenities. They they give women, for example, uh, not just perfume in the rooms that they stay in, but say a choice of four different perfumes, such as uh, with names like um, uh, that are that are as, like really evocative and culturally loaded names like continental or Latin. Eastern and Island. Those are the names of the different perfumes as different kinds of identities that uh, a woman staying in one of these rooms might want to try to um, uh, put on or, or, or to, to claim um, by dabbing themselves with uh, some of these, per- these different um, smells. And the, the rooms in the Lady Hilton program, therefore, were... Uh, these multi-sensory environments. They had these amenities. Um, they also had special wallpaper, uh, special, sometimes special smells, special pillows, and they were aimed at appealing to a specific class of consumer. Um, and in this sense, what's interesting, one of the things that's particularly interesting here is that they addressed not just the um uh, the practical needs about self-presentation that um, you might that you might anticipate, um, like the need to sew on a button after it comes loose, or uh, to dry one's hair with the hair dryer. Um, it did these things, and it did have sewing kits and hair dryers for the first time. Um, but it also this is uh, her, her argument here. It, it is it, it's it assuaged social anxieties about social presentation, um, which is to say, it didn't the the the, the Lady Hilton Hotel program um, did more than provide certain kinds of goods and services. It also conveyed a sense that someone understood their concerns and anxieties uh, over self presentation. Um, and that kind of affirmation, um, is, is, is novel here. So the, the chapter speaks to the commoditization of self-presentation in, in the sense of providing all these amenities, um, but also speaks to consumers' needs for psychological affirmation as well as the availability of goods, which really speaks to the complexity of the relationship between marketers and consumers, uh, speaks to the complexity of what happens in the process of consumption. Um, and uh, uh, this chapter, I think, is very suggestive of all of those different layers. Um, the program ends up coming to an end for couple of different reasons and to a couple of different effects. Uh, one of them is that by setting aside certain rooms specifically for women or certain rooms, certain floors specifically for women, um, they were um, 
left empty sometimes. Um, and hotels are in the business of filling rooms. So they were losing money when they had unfilled rooms and this created pressure on them to eliminate the program, which eventually they did. But many of the amenities, uh, many of the qualities of the program become, you know, essentially universalized in hotels nowadays. So it is, you know, unremarkable to find, uh, a hairdryer in, in a hotel uh, room today. Actually, it would be remarkable not to find one. Um, and uh, this, is, this, is a, this is an outgrowth of this attention to the sensory needs uh, of, of female travelers in, this, in the course of this program. Wonderful. Well, this is such fascinating stuff. This is a fantastic volume. And uh, David, thank you very much. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but um, before you go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, thank you for asking. I've uh, I've just finished up a book, new book about the history of music in the U.S. military. Uh, it spans from the Civil War to the 21st century, uh, to Afghanistan and Iraq, and it looks at ways that music enabled American war making through its effects on the on the troops um, over over more than 150 years. Uh, the book's called Instrument of War, Music and the Making of America's Soldiers, and it's going to be published uh, next fall. So hopefully uh, that will be of interest to, to some people. Wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll be looking out for it. Um, David, thank you very much. Thank you, Robin.